Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. Uh, show of hands, who here is, is a father present? Hands. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Before I begin, I just want to pray a blessing over you. Um, I know that uh, for me, I'm a father of three children. I have a stepdaughter who's 11, uh, Julie, who's three, and uh, my son Joshua, who is uh, 11 months. And it has been one of the most amazing um, experiences to be a father and to have your children there present with you. And it's been really reflective on me as well. And so I know that uh, there's moments where I need a lot of uh, grace. I need a lot of uh, forgiveness. I need a lot of strength. And so um, I want to pray for the fathers real quick before we begin. Is that all right? Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you that you reveal yourself to us as a father. And the relationship that you speak to us, that you reveal to us uh, through your son, is that of a father and his children. There's something about fathers that uh, says a lot about who you are. And so, God, I pray for the fathers here. I pray that you would give them grace, God, that you would guide them, that they would model themselves after you, that they would be slow to anger, quick to love, that they wouldn't provoke their children, but raise them in the love of the Lord. And God, I just ask that you would be, uh, be to them a father. Lord, remind them that you are a good father, as we sang. Remind them that as you love us, God, you give us the strength to love our children and our families. And God, I pray that as a community, we would be fathers to others, that we would be uh, role models to others, that we would love others, Lord, that there would be a, a shift in our community uh, amongst the men and the fathers, that we would look towards children, look towards women, look towards our community and say, we're here for them. We're here to serve. And so, God, I pray you would give us strength to do so. You would uh, help us because it's not easy. Lord, I thank you for these men. Bless them. Bless their families this day, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, my name is uh, Josh Cepeda. I'm a uh, member here at Hope Brooklyn. Uh, I'm a resident Brooklynite. I uh, was born in, uh, yeah, I was uh, born actually in uh, Spanish Harlem. Uh, I was there till about three years old, and then my father became a superintendent in Flatbush, Brooklyn. So I was raised in Flatbush. If you're not familiar with that neighborhood, um, it's right around uh, Brooklyn College. It's a pretty, uh, pretty big neighborhood. It's close to Ditmas Park. I grew up on the uh, edge of Midwood and, and Flatbush, so on Ocean Avenue and Avenue I, if you're familiar. If not, Google it. Uh, <laughs> And then I moved to Bay Ridge. My father got another job there. And then uh, when I got married to my wife, I moved to Sunset Park, and that's where we live now. And, and I love Brooklyn, man. Brooklyn is, is where it's at for me. Uh, and so I'm so happy to be a part of this community and just being present with uh, old and new Brooklynites. I'm so grateful for everybody here. And so this morning, uh, I wanted to just uh, open up by saying that it's been a little over a year and a half since I've become a uh, comic book fiend. If you're not familiar with that term, fiend, that term is a term that means someone who's addicted or obsessed with something. I grew up uh, using it way too much um, as a kid to describe anybody who had any kind of uh, passion for something. But I am definitely a comic book fiend. Um, comic books have taken over my home, literally. I have, in a year and a half, I have amassed a collection of about 300 comics. 
Um, some of them are really cool. I've seen some really cool stuff slip through my fingers as well. Um, just didn't have enough money, man. It sucks. <laughs> but, um, but more than uh, collecting uh, comics, what drew me to comics was uh, the storytelling. I was amazed at how I would pick up these books and read them and, and they would speak uh, to my experience. Uh, I mean, they were fantastical and fictional stories, but they spoke to me. They, I would read them and, and be so introspective. I would think about myself and think about what was going on in me. And it was most present for me recently in a book that I found called uh, I Kill Giants, which was uh, a book written by Joe Kelly and illustrated by Cam Namora. I've been telling everybody to read this book because it is a phenomenal uh, graphic novel. I mean, if you're not a fan of graphic novels, that's all right. The story is incredible. And it actually centers around a young girl who's uh, middle school age. Her name is Barbara. And she's um, going through traumatic experience. But she doesn't have time for that because she's a giant killer. Uh, unbeknownst to everyone around her, giants are present in our world or they're coming through into our world. And she has no time for the day-to-day the -day issues that everyone's dealing with, no time for the struggles that her family's going through because she has to stop this, 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 uh, this problem. And the book is a, basically a book about dealing with hopelessness and despair and finding hope. And uh, I was amazed at how by the end of the book, I found myself holding back tears. If, uh, if you know, if you don't know me, I work for the Metro North Railroad and I actually work in uh, one of the most notoriously uh, bad neighborhoods of New York, South Bronx. It's changing now, it's being, it's being gentrified. That's another conversation. But, um, but here I am on the two train on, in uh, the South Bronx holding back tears. Can't show people your week. Um, but the book was incredible. And what moved me wasn't just the story, but the fact that the story revealed something that I had been struggling with at the time. I myself had been struggling with hopelessness, despair. I was looking at my life, at work, and my family, and seeing all the issues and things that I couldn't fix, and just feeling like there's no hope there. And as I'm reading this book, and as it's, it's pouring out hope by the last panel, I, I couldn't believe how much I had forgotten of the hope that lies in this world, this present hope. And I know sometimes some of us don't feel like that either. We feel like there is no hope. We see what's going on around us. And so this morning, I want to talk about hope because Paul lays down in uh, the passage we're going to read today something we call a, a resurrection hope. And so if you've been with us for some time, you know we're in a sermon series called the uh, Subversive Church. And what that is, is that we've been looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and how he's looking to subvert these Christians' understanding of what it means to be a Christian in a city that's not quite like us, well, actually a lot like ours, not that different. And so Paul gets to this point where he talks about a key doctrine in the resurrection. In fact, he says in this book that, or in this letter, that if the resurrection isn't true, then Christians of all people are the most pitiful because we're basing our whole life and our whole faith and our, all our hope in something that never happened. But if it is, Paul begins to say, then there is much hope to be had. And so he deals with this idea of what a resurrection would look like and why we can continue to labor and strive for a hope that, uh, that we find in, in a resurrection. And so if you have your Bibles with you on your phone or, or a physical Bible, we're gonna be putting the words up. Um, read along with me. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting from verse 35 all the way through verse 58. And it reads, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. 
And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, but the second man is from heaven. And as of the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's a lot going on there. And I'm not going to pretend that I understand it all. In fact, when Russell uh, sent me this passage and asked me to read it, I responded to him like, what is it you expect me to do? <laughs> because uh, there's, a, there's a lot there. But as I sat with it, that last phrase, that last admonition that Paul leaves just kept permeating me, to not give up, to always abound in the work of the Lord. He says, your work is not in vain. And, and it was at the same time that I was reading that novel, that graphic novel that, and hopelessness, hopelessness was present, that I began to see a glimmer of hope. And I wondered why, after all these things that Paul said, why he would end with an admonition like that. And it's because the resurrection offers us a hope that's actually the cry of our soul here in this life. But first, Paul has to deal with this idea. He has to subvert this view of the resurrection of the body for his first century Greek audience. Now, a side note, the resurrection, isn't, the resurrection of the body isn't an easy issue to deal with within any culture. Even within the Jews, there was divisions as to whether this was true or not. It wasn't like it was set in stone, like uh, someone comes up and says, hey, uh, you believe in the resurrection of the dead? And it's like, yes, and you're not like, what does that mean? There's, there's no culture in which that doesn't seem strange. But for the Greeks specifically, it's strange because of one man. Uh, philosophy is actually one man, Plato. For Plato, recognizing the imperfections of the physical world, he maintained a low view of the body. He didn't deny the physical or its existence, he just thought it was inferior. For Plato, the physical world cannot properly communicate what he called the perfect form of things. 
You see, Plato had this theory of forms that everything in this physical world is a form or a reflection of this perfect version which we can't really materialize because we are imperfect. And so things as grand as like perfect justice always seems to slip through our fingers in this life. And even something as small as finding perfect genes. I mean, I don't know if you're like me and you have two pairs of jeans, they're both from the same place, they're both the same size, they're a different color but they don't fit the same. Like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm the only one. Um, for, Paul, uh, for Plato, that's what he means by everything in this world is imperfect. It, it's, we're trying to find the perfect form because for Plato, it could only be grasped in the mind. And so he believed that the mind itself was way more important. He saw the mind as like divine and eternal and we should invest in just understanding what it is that we're searching for and that should be enough because what we're gonna search for or how we find in this life doesn't exist. And so what does that mean? Well, in short, the physical world leaves us wanting. And this is the context in which Paul is addressing his first century audience. It's the reason why he says that some people will ask, what is this resurrection body? It's not like a general question, like people are actually uh, positing, like they're saying, hey, I wanna know. It's more uh, uh, a mocking, a satirical question, like what's that body gonna look like? You know, like it's, it's not a sincere question, it's more out of mockery, out of this idea that it's, the resurrection is foolishness. Because who would want to return to a form in which your desires are never met? You see, we look out into the world for things we feel are simple and easy to understand but we always come up short. And even if we catch a glimpse of it, because of the mortality of the physical world, it doesn't last. What Plato's talking about and what Paul's dealing with is this idea that the physical world is not where we should expect to find what we long for. I'm a huge fan of The Office. If you don't know The Office, or NBC's The Office, after the service, we have prayer. I will pray for you. No, it's a great show. Um, and I, I watch it religiously. Um, <laughs> yeah, my wife can't stand how much I watch the show. But um, there's a scene, I believe it's season uh, nine, if not season eight, where uh, two characters are in a bar, and one of them, he throws up all over the other guy, and it's all over his jeans. And he, the guy stands up, and the thing that comes out of his mouth is, they don't make these in boot cut anymore. <laughs> you know, he's... He's frustrated because his perfect genes are ruined. And uh, I don't know if you've been, felt like that in this life, that things happen and you realize that's it. Maybe I'll never find that or see that again. And it's because of this idea that the world is imperfect and therefore we shouldn't uh, find what we're looking for in it. But I love what C.S. Lewis uh, says about this idea of this dissatisfaction that we find in the world. And forgive me, you're gonna hear a lot of Lewis today. Lewis really helped me out with this sermon. He's, this is what he says. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. If none of my earthly pleasures pleasure satisfy it, it doesn't prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly desires were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. Plato and Lewis seem to be climbing up the same tree but ending up at different branches. While Plato and Greeks see the physical world and its weakness, its inability to uh, 
conceptualize the longings that have been aroused within us and they turn away from the world, Lewis says Christians turn towards it. For the problem isn't with the physical or natural world, as Paul is going to talk about it in this text, but it's with what one believes about the world and why it was made. In order for these Corinthians to understand the hope of the resurrection, Paul's going to have to subvert this Greek view of the world with the Christian view, which Lewis explains in another place. See, there he is again. A good world that has gone wrong, but still retains the memory of what it ought to have been. That's the Christian view of the world, that this is a good world gone wrong, but it still retains a memory of what it was supposed to be. And so I don't know if you caught it when we were reading the text, but Paul begins to talk about this, the created world and all the bodies that exist in it, all the forms, as, as Plato would call it. And he uses all this imagery that, as I read it, I couldn't help but think about Genesis 1. I mean, Paul talks about humans, seeds, animals, birds, fish, the sun, the moon, heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, stars. And I don't know about you, but it just was so eerie they're really familiar to Genesis 1. Look at these excerpts, excerpts from Genesis 1 that I, that I put together. Here's Genesis 1, starting at verse 7. It says, And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under, from the expanse of, under the expanse from the waters above. God called it heaven. God called the dry, earth, dry land earth. And it was good. Look what he says about seeds. He says, God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, planting yield, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. He talks about the sun and the moon. He says, and God made these great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser night to rule the night, and the stars. And God said, let water swarm with living creatures and birds fly above the earth. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, beasts of the earth. He saw it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And God blessed them and saw everything he made and behold, it was good. You know, as Paul begins to lay out this created order and how everything has a body because God has given it one, he's not just talking about the world being made, but he's talking about something about the, what the world communicates to us. You see, to acknowledge that the natural world as having been created by God is to point to the inherent and original goodness of creation. It means going back to Genesis 1 and saying with God after each stage of creation that it's good. See, this is why Christians affirm the, the dignity of all men, women, and children because we're made in the image of God. It's the reason why Christians affirm arts and sciences and humanities. We must do this. Why? Because to understand the world we live in is to help us to understand God. See, what I'm saying, fam, is that it's the natural, if in fact the natural world is created by God, who's given each a body as he has chosen, this means that God as creator has revealed in the creation of the natural world something of himself and his plans to us. What Paul's dealing with right now is saying that, first of all, the body, the natural world, is good. And sometimes it doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes when we're dealing with the world, I mean, especially what Joseph mentioned about what's happening in our borders, we look and we say it should make sense that separating children from their families is bad. That should make sense, and yet it doesn't. You know, we look at this world and we, we see things that are broken, we see things that are imperfect, and we forget that it there's an inherent goodness in the world that God has created it with, that God wants us to remember. And it's because of this, that it's because the natural world, as God has created it, is how we become familiar with the spiritual, with who God is. Here C.S. Lewis talks about 
we'll have another quote about from C.S. Lewis. Again, this guy's just all over the place. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this idea that the natural world is not just good, but necessary. Because God intends to reveal his major plan, his redemptive plan in the world through the natural. And this is how he describes it. He says, the picture is not what we expected, talking about the resurrection. Though whether it is less or more probable and philosophical on that account is another question. It's not the picture of an escape from any and every kind of nature into something unconditional and truly and utterly transcendent. It is the picture of a new human nature and a new nature in general being brought into existence. We must indeed believe the risen body to be extremely different from the mortal, but the existence in that new state of anything that could be in any sense described as body at all involves some sort of spatial relations, and in the long run, a whole new universe. That is the picture, not of an unmaking, but of a remaking. The old field of space, time, and matter, and the senses is to be weeded, dug, sown for a new crop. We may be tired of that old field, but God is not. The resurrection of the body reveals to the world that God's major plan is to bring dead things to life. God intends for us to see him as one who gives life, who brings life. In fact, he used, Paul uses this analogy between the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam being Adam created by God in the beginning of the world and the last Adam being Christ, the one who gives life. And he says that those who are like the man of heaven, bear his image. I remember hearing one time that Christ became like us so that we might become like him. That in Christ we see God's ultimate plan in that he resurrects people. Leonard Ravenhill, a preacher I remember hearing a lot in the 80s uh, from just tons of places. Leonard Ravenhill was a contemporary of David Wilkinson who started Times Square Church. And he had this famous quote where he says that the gospel the good news of the gospel isn't that God makes bad men good, it's that he makes dead men live. And that's a powerful statement. And you don't see that reality unless you understand the resurrection. For if God brings Jesus back to life and he comes into this world and he, he himself sends us out, then he's also resurrecting this world. And this is what Paul talks about as the work of the Lord. At the, at the end, that admonition which says, don't give up the work of the Lord. Because he says that Christian hope, and he, just, he defines how the, the systematic theology study Bible calls it, Christian hope does not culminate in a disembodied spiritual existence in heaven, but in a resurrected one on earth. What we're longing for, the cry of our soul, isn't that we would escape this world, but that this world would be what we always believed it could be. When we look into our justice system, or we look into the world and we see failures, what we're longing for is why it's for it to be what it was always meant to be. So often more than not, I don't know if you were like me, if you grew up or had any kind of experience in the Christian church, much of the church was always pointed at transcending this life. We need to escape this world. We need to get out. This world's going down. But that's not the picture that God paints with the resurrection. He paints a picture of him coming in and bringing it back to life. He paints a picture of his church present in the world, testifying to that work, testifying to the fact that God is resurrecting people, he's resurrecting systems, he's resurrecting places, he's resurrecting nations, he's resurrecting hope. You know, I remember growing up and hearing constant sermons. In fact, I was talking to my mother recently because as New York has transformed so much, 
I mean, one of the biggest, th biggest things that shocks me has been being a New Yorker my whole life is that just the, the amazing shift in property value. In the Flatbush neighborhood I grew up in, was not the best neighborhood. I, see, I saw so much uh, crime and, and poverty and disparity. Um, and I remember vividly family members of mine leaving New York City in the 90s. They couldn't take it anymore. They lost all hope and they just left New York. And they, uh, most of them moved down south. They live in North Carolina now. And I remember wondering, like, them constantly telling my parents to leave as well, that there's nothing good in New York, they'd always say, there's nothing good there, and they would constantly leave. And this idea permeated me a lot. I remember growing up saying that my goal was to, to leave New York. I spent some time living in the Hudson Valley with a friend in Brewster, New York, if anyone knows where that is. And I loved it so much, I was like, man, this is where I want to be. New York is trash. Don't want that. I want this. But around the time that Hope Brooklyn was starting, I was speaking with Russell, and, and, this, and as we were, he was talking about this vision for a community, I began to see something different about New York. I began to see this view of value and of, of God wanting to come and bring to life. And so when I look at a property van, I was talking to my mother, I was like, why didn't you buy something in New York? Why didn't you, uh, you and my dad invest in something? My father's a handyman. He could have fixed, I don't know, how, he could have fixed the house all by himself. And she told me because our Christian upbringing always told us that to not invest in this world, she said. She told me that what I grew up hearing was that this world will one day perish. Don't invest in it. There's nothing good here. And I was amazed because as a child, that, that view transcended to me where nothing good was home. There was nothing good in, in what I, a place that I called home. And that's not the picture of, of the gospel. That's not the picture of the good news of Christ. And, you don't, and that's not the picture that the resurrection of the body gives. You see, the resurrection of the body isn't just this idea of coming back or, or the next stage. It's this idea of a fulfillment, a completion of God's plan, what he intends to do in the world. This is my last Lewis quote. Talking about those desires that we find, he says that I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it be snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main objective of life to press on to the other country and help others do the same. You see, the work of the Lord that Paul ends with, that admonition to be immovable, always abounding, is because what the story that we're telling the world is that God is coming to resurrect it. He's coming to transform those dead places in our life. He's coming to bring hope to where there is no hope. In fact, if you read the scriptures, you see that God is constantly doing this over and over and over again. In fact, one of my favorite uh, passages which talks about the coming of Christ says that to the Gentiles is a light has shone in a darkness. First John says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. The picture that God is painting is that God is coming to bring light and life into the world. And he does this primarily through this life that we're living currently. God's redemptive story has been formatted so as to be seen, heard, felt, and tasted. Julie to this morning was asking me, uh, why do we come to church, you know? And she's three years old, so I know me trying to give her this long like explanation is really gonna work. But as I was trying to figure out what to say, all I thought of was telling her that this is how we meet God. We meet him through the songs we sing. We hear his voice. We meet him through prayer. He's listening to our voice. And he meets our needs through our friends and family here.
The way that the world can see that God is resurrecting it or that God is coming and there is hope, there's light in the darkness is that the church, us in this room, give, give proof to a resurrected life. That when people see us and they see our families, when they see us and how we love one another, they would see something very different than what they see in the world. That where there is no hope, there is hope. And I love the, the, the irony that our, our church is called hope because that's exactly what Paul is getting at. That if the resurrection is not true, then there is no hope. But if it is, and it is, there is great hope. What's interesting about the resurrection is that it's not an escape. We're gonna come back to what's familiar. We'll come back to what we know. Only now, we see clearer, hear louder, feel stronger, and taste sweeter what was first experienced in this life. The joys don't end here. Paul rightly calls this a mystery, and he rightly does, because it, I know, for me, it doesn't make that much sense. How this happens, how is the weak transformed to the powerful? How is the perishable, the things that perish made imperishable? How is the mortal made immortal? How is that which is dishonorable made glorified? And sometimes we see all this in the work of our hands. I know for myself, I see how am I gonna be strong to love? Well, God is, makes me strong. What about the things that I do that they're not perfect? Well, God gets glory in them for he's created this body. You see, that's what Paul's talking about when he says our work is not in vain. For the work done in this body with these hands and these eyes, this mouth, with these ears, give glimpses of God's transformative work, both in this world and in us. When we labor in this world, when we labor for perfect justice, when we labor for perfect peace, when we labor for love, when we labor to serve one another, we're not laboring in vain. We're giving glimpses of God's present work. We give glimpses of God bringing dead things to life. If you're like me, you may have been taught that this life is nothing good to give. And I'm not too sure I'd agree with that anymore. Because what I see now is that this life has the capacity to give us a precious gift, hope. And the hope that we find in the, in the gospel, the hope we find in the resurrection is that, again, like I mentioned before, it's the cry of our soul. It's a hope that we know is out there. A hope that we can see, hear, touch, and taste. A hope that's breaking through every day. As I was thinking about how to define that hope, how can we look at that hope? I couldn't help but think about, again, Lewis. We were reading the Chronicles of Narnia. I started reading that with, with Julie, and she's so much fun because if we have anything in the book that reminds her of something in this world, that's what she wants to like use or bring in. So we actually have this wardrobe in our room. And so I've been reading this book to her in the wardrobe. Um, yeah, so she'll like run to the wardrobe and this thing is small. I, it's yeah, but yeah, I gotta go in there and read it to her. And um, there's a part in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia where, well, if you're not familiar with the story, four children stumble into this mystical world but it's under a curse. It's always winter. I love what's defined to the children, described to always winter, never Christmas. That's a horrible description. That's horrible. Like, especially for children, always winter, never Christmas. I know growing up when winter came, Christmas coming, it, it was one and the same, uh, same season. Um, and so they find this world under a curse and one of the siblings is tempted to betray 
his other siblings to this, this witch who has put it under that curse because the real king hasn't returned yet. They're waiting for this king to return. His name is Aslan, but he hasn't come. And so the, the brother believing this witch to be, you know, to be able to give him all that he desires, decides to betray his siblings. And so they go into this world. He, betray, he betrays them. And he's leading the witch to his siblings. And I love how Lewis begins to describe this winter beginning to thaw. I want to read you that excerpt. It says, Now they were steadily racing again, and soon Edmund noticed that the snow which splashed against them as they rushed through was now wetter than it had been all last night. At the same time, he noticed that he was feeling much less cold. It was also becoming foggy. In fact, every minute it grew foggier and warmer, and the sleigh was not running nearly as well as it has been running up until now. At first he thought it was because the reindeer were tired, but soon he saw that that couldn't be the real reason. The sleigh jerked and skidded and kept on jolting as if it had struck against stones. And however the dwarf whipped the poor reindeer, the sleigh went slower and slower. There also seemed to be a curious noise all around them, but the noise, that, but the noise of their driving and jolting and the dwarf shouting at the reindeer prevented Edmund from hearing what it was. Until suddenly the sleigh struck so fast that it wouldn't go on at all. When that happened, there was suddenly a moment's silence, and Edmund could at last listen to that noise, the strange, sweet noise. And it was not so strange, for he heard it before. It was a sound of running water. All around them, out of sight, there were streams, chattering, murmuring, bubbling, splashing, even in the distance. And his heart gave a great leap when he realized that the frost was over, and much nearer, and much nearer there was a drip, drip, drip from branches of trees. And then he looked at one tree and saw the great load of snow slide off of it. And for the first time that he had entered Narnia, he saw the dark green fur of the tree. But he hadn't had time to listen or to watch any longer, for the witch had told them, don't sit staring, fool, get out and help. And of course, Edmund had to obey. He stepped out in the snow, but it was really only slush now, and he began helping the dwarf. Every moment, the patches of green grew bigger and the patches of snow grew smaller. Every moment, more and more of the trees shook off their robes of snow. Soon, wherever you looked, instead of white shapes, you saw dark green firs, branches of bare oaks, beeches and elms. Then the mist turned from white to gold and presently cleared away altogether. Shafts of delicious sunlight struck down on the forest floor and over her you could see a blue sky. Soon there were more wonderful things happen, happening around them. Coming suddenly around the corner into the glade was a silver birch tree. Edmund saw the ground covered in all, the dire in all directions with these little yellow flowers. Mind your own business, said the dwarf. And he saw that Edmund had turned to look at them and he gave him a jerk. But of course, he didn't prevent Edmund from seeing. Faster, faster, said the witch. There was no trace of fog now. The sky became bluer and bluer, and now there were clouds hurrying across the sky. This is no thaw, said the dwarf, suddenly stopping. This is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed. I tell you, this is Aslan's doing. When Lewis paints this picture of this world that has been cursed, that has brought despair and hopelessness begins to fade. That's the picture 
that the resurrection begins to bring. For it shines the first light through the snow to us. And so this is that hope that God loves this world, that it's good, it pleases him, and he has not abandoned it, but is at work to redeem it. And he is coming. The cry of our soul is not that we should escape this world, but that God would come into it. And the first glimmer of that hope is that Christ had came. He became like us, came into the world, but then he died and rose again to tell us that he's changing the world. He's making it as it should have been. He's bringing perfect peace, perfect justice, perfect love. He's righting wrongs. And we don't see it now, but it's coming because he's coming. I'd like to invite the, the worship band up. Maybe you're like me and uh, you've been struggling with hopelessness. You look into your, your life or your job or your family, your friends, and you find yourself filled with despair. You see these things you can't change. You see these people that constantly bring more pain. Like Joseph mentioned uh, and Nathan mentioned, Father's Day sometimes brings up those issues. Sometimes Father's Day brings up issues of pain and hurt. Sometimes we feel like those things will never change. But the resurrection of the body isn't just another stage in Christianity. It's a hope that God is correcting, reshaping, remaking the world. And that that doesn't have to be our story. Hopelessness is not our story. Brokenness is not our story. For God takes the weak and he makes the strong. God takes what the world has deemed dishonorable and he makes it glorified. And so that's what God's doing today. He's doing with us. He's doing it in our community. And so as the worship band leads us into a, a time of response, I want us to think about that hope, that hope that God is transforming the situations around us. He's transforming us. And that that hope is breaking through every day. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.